Hello and welcome to the SDC Fit Learning Podcast. I'll be your host today. My name's Ben Scott. I'll be joined by Jason Galea. Thanks for joining us on our way to create 1 million positive outcomes for personal training clients by 2030. The podcast is brought to you by at STC Fit Learning, a page created to upskill and educate PTs and gym nerds. Also brought to you by at STC Fit, and that's a place for all your online and in-person personal training needs. If you enjoyed today's episodes, please give us a share and tag on the Instawebs. You can tag at STC Fit, at STC Fit Learning, at Ben Scott SC, and at Jason Galea PC. Hope you enjoy the show. Yep. Nice. We are live. What's Welcome. up, everybody? Yeah, Welcome yeah. back to the podcast, Dalton Frank. Yes. Me, mate. I love it. It was, it was so nice. I had to be on twice. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're <laughs> not in the same room all. this time. Not on our, yeah. <laughs> uh, what do we used to call that couch? The casting couch. Casting couch. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was Gold Coast casting couch too. Jace was real jealous because he can get to be there. Yeah. That was a good one. No, I wasn't jealous because I had the, the worst leg doms of all time and <laughs> we had to walk up and down those stairs because it had no fucking lift and it was on the top floor. So I was happy to leave that place. Don't <laughs> <laughs> uh, match people's volume when you're not used to it. Yeah. Yeah. Or just don't train with me because um, you can't work with me. Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Like the reason why you were sitting down on the floor in between sets was because you were trying to recover. I get it. Yeah. Now. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, um, slightly different topic this time around, man. We're going to go more into behavioral uh, change, which would yep. be really exciting. Yeah. It's fun. Um, maybe just give us a little bit of a rundown on what your background and stuff is in yeah, cool. that. I know you've done a couple of courses and stuff around it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, currently doing my undergrad, which is in exercise and nutritional science, and that rolls into a master's in dietetics. And along within that, uh, we do a whole bunch on uh, psychology of clients and communication and stuff like that. Um, I've also externally done uh, some ACT qualifications, which is acceptance and commitment therapy, a third wave psychology approach that focuses on allowing people to just kind of accept where they are it's kind of like a you know, if people will if they're not familiar with it it's kind of like imagining buddhism stoicism mindfulness kind of all rolled into one but an actual science a scientific approach and formulated approaches um tested analogies and exercises and criteria and stuff that you can kind of roll through and go with it um and instead of it being kind of like the second wave stuff which is like the cbt uh, which we'll get into in this chat where that kind of has you uh, grappling with concepts and kind of arguing and fighting against them to work your way through it to get to a point of acceptance. The whole idea is just to circumnavigate that, get to a point of acceptance first, and then realizing that that acceptance of whatever your issue is has far larger implications on reducing stresses for you to be able to then reframe and focus on something, um, which allows you to actually move forward psychologically. So instead of kind of avoiding things or withholding things, you get to this point of uh, accepting and understanding what's going on and makes it so much easier to work on. And it has like the highest success rates for like uh, quitting smoking, super long-term weight loss uh, sustainability approaches out of it. Um, and so I, I, when I was reading more and more about it, I was like, why isn't more people actually doing this and incorporating it within their coaching? So I went out, got on board and got, uh, I 
uh, got qualified in that. I'm about to do my trauma qualification in it as well, which is for like PTSD, uh, general anxiety disorder, and specific anxiety disorder, and those uh, kind of very unique areas. Did someone um, like draw your attention to that stuff? Or was that something that you like stumbled upon just like looking for something like that? So I got uh, diagnosed with like a really bad uh, illness like two years ago. Uh, and part of that, like the depression and anxiety really sent me spinning and like I bounced through all these therapists and I come across one that who did this practice. And I was like, what? what? It felt like magic after the first session. I couldn't believe something had that effect on me so quickly after feeling lost and really struggling with everything before. Um, and it wasn't like it was a, uh, it wasn't like it, there was so much time had gone by since the, the diagnosis and stuff that you would just kind of get to a point of uh, acceptance that kind of some people kind of intrinsically get to. It was still within like four months, three months or so. So I was like, you know, right at the pinnacle of being angry and upset and hurt and just trying to dive, understand the, the whole concept. Um, so I felt I experienced that and after having such a like a completely different mental outlook after walking out of that session I was like wow what is this uh, and I went back and was doing as continuous sessions as often as I can and uh, within you know nine months I completely stopped uh, like depressive anxiety uh, episodes and to the point where I was having anxiety attacks where I couldn't get out of bed or like uh, I would sit in these uh, anxiety uh, attacks that would last for an hour and a half, two hours that I couldn't break out of like the concentration and stuff like that to, to being, you know, back to a normal functioning, fully functioning person uh, who experiences like, you know, a full range of emotions, but isn't like, I don't lock myself out from uh, experiencing or understanding the specific things. So uh, once I uh, did that about halfway through when we were talking about it, what and talking about what I wanted to be doing in the future and where I was aiming to go with, I realized quite quickly that, I needed to be able to incorporate this within my own clients and how they were uh, doing things because a lot of the stuff that I was doing beforehand was I, I kind of felt limited by what CBT was allowing or had like your our approach for um, behavioral change and stuff like that. It kind of never felt fully encapsulating for people. It felt like it was always kind of this like direction that we wanted to head in, but there was no path to kind of follow along to get there, or it was uh, a lot of um, redundant questions that I'd ask uh, of clients that never actually had led to anything helpful and meaningful. And I always had this idea that if I was going to say anything to a client, it would have to be something that had practical applications. I hate this idea of people talking around in like just like empty words and stuff, or even worse, saying stuff that has a negative consequence on people and not giving some practical applications and how to use the stuff that the advice and stuff that you're giving. Um, and so until I could figure out a way to do that, all of my behavioral change stuff came from uh, like, like experience and trying to learn ways in which to do like motivational interviewing and stuff like that, which they, these all help. They all like definitely give that path. But once you learn how to apply like psychometric testing and you use some of the uh, like trans theoretical model that we'll talk about as well, knowing how to then incorporate those into like value-based behavioral change uh, applications, you kind of get this like Venn diagram of like ultimate goal, like uh, behavioral change approaches. You have like all these different areas that kind of cross over and just really allow people to kind of shift their view from what they were doing to something that's really actionable, which is what I love about it. Yeah, sounds really cool. So is that something that you would recommend coaches do or even 100%. clients do or yeah yeah like even um 
So it's it's a hard thing to like start practicing because it can be quite you know raw to expose yourself to feeling you know all the previous trauma or anything that's going on in your life to feel the those shit moments again. That's a it's a really hard thing to want to put yourself out there to do. So you have to be willing to explore those areas and stuff. But also by doing that and practicing that, you actually get quite a lot better as a a coach, counselor, uh, whatever you want to call it, for uh, an act practitioner um, in how to apply it and then apply it with uh, clients and stuff as well. So 100%, you don't need to have any qualifications to go do the course and stuff like that. It does give you some um, points if you have like psychology qualifications. It's like part of their uh, extracurricular upskilling stuff that you can utilize, but there's no barrier in that you need to have done four years of psychology or anything into it. Um, or if they're not interested in doing the course, uh, a really easy introduction into it is the the happiness trap by Russ Harris, um, which I can send it like I can link you guys to, and you can put it in the show notes or whatever afterwards. Thanks, it's a really easy way to kind of understand it, and Russ does an amazing job at using a whole bunch of simple analogies for people to be able to um, relate to the experiences, what they're going through, and how to work through the changes and stuff that we're you're trying to achieve. Um, so that's a great in, intro to it. Yeah. Awesome. I like it. We've done, um, what's our actual qualification, Jess? Mindset coaching, so for, I think, mm-hmm. um, which contained like, yeah, like reach model conversations and my, uh, motivational interviewing and all that mm-hmm. type of stuff. And just that alone, like being able to, even as a coach, have the conversations and I guess reduce your own stress mm-hmm. um, and being able to empower clients rather than, thinking you have to do everything for them was super yep. powerful. Yep. Um, so I imagine taking anything to another level beyond that is, is really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Like, well, it's kind of, you can do it yourself without the education and stuff like that there by just trying to ask questions of what's going on or why, and, you know, doing that self and the analysis that goes with that. Uh, it just does, it does become a little bit harder to understand what stuff's useful and if, uh, what information is you know, not useful or where to, you know, like kind of what paths to take from that information do you gain and where can you help someone explore with this or if you're stuck at one point, how to kind of pivot and go to a different area to, to work with uh, to help maybe come back to that where they, you know, resistant to talking about and stuff like that. Um, so that's where the course really helps. But if you wanted to learn about it, I mean, you can just type in acceptance, commitment therapy into PubMed and there's like 300 published studies on this stuff. It's not like it's a, a new, like really, you know, um, non-traditional uh, approach to psychology. It's been around for quite a while. It's done a lot of uh, scientific rigor and now it's moving closer and closer into being applied uh, as equally to CBT. Yeah, that's really cool. So um, I guess when we were kind of chatting off camera, the place we wanted to start was maybe taking a look into how people tend to set goals um what yeah what what method and how they approach that um yeah. it's normal i guess yeah so well my whole experience as a coach has always been i would have someone reach out to me say that they're kind of interested in doing some coaching or they've seen my work and stuff like that um, and i'd be really excited get them onto a call and be like what's your goals like where do we want to go from here i have to say for the first two probably almost three years, that was like as deep as I got with their goals, right? It would just be like, oh, I want to lose five kilos and I just leave it at that. And it's like, cool, sweet, awesome. Well, to lose five kilos and then I just move on and just start talking about how we go about getting there. 
or they go, oh, I just want to feel happier in my body. And it's like, sweet, that's, I love that. Great. Uh, you know, I want you to feel happier in your body. This is how we can kind of do that. And without ever actually talking or going into their goals a little bit further. And I, I hate to say it, but I didn't have great success with all those clients. Um, I probably struggled a lot more with having to invest way more time into them to eventually get to this point that some of my other clients just got super motivated by. And these people I was trying to get motivated along the way. And it didn't make sense to me as to why like people were having different responses and reactions until I started to layer into the, the different goals. So I call these just shooting goals because people have them and they never help them. Um, it's like the emotion stuff because emotions are so fleeting. If you come into it and say, I just want to feel better about myself, I can make you have a really horrible hit training session, give you a really awesome cheat day and you go from feeling shit to feeling great about yourself. And that contrast like right there is a way that we can kind of just tick the box and say, based on that feeling of your goal of just feeling better about yourself, we've now achieved that. So like from there, where do they go? If they've got no other reason to keep working towards things uh, and if it's so finicky with then why would they uh, be able to use that to last 12 weeks to change their life or, you know, reform habits and shift the, the way that they have no sustenance to them. It's awesome that people want to do that and feel those things, but it doesn't really matter because you don't have to achieve anything around fat loss, um, you know, muscle gain, changing the behaviors or anything like that to achieve that. It could be simply just eating some food that you like and that makes you feel happy and it's kind of just ticks the box there. So aside from emotional goals, we have other ones which are kind of these outcome goals. So it's stuff like, I just want to lose five kilos. And without, why they want to lose the five kilos. The five kilos just becomes an outcome. So as long as they lose whatever they've set out as that outcome, they feel like this success has been ticked off. And if they don't, they're an absolute failure. So straight away, you're setting up for like a 50-50 chance of success or failure. So I don't like those odds. I think that's still stacked in their favor of failing. So um, you, can, you can use it, but it just is very easy to kind of fail if they don't ever achieve that, hit their first initial target, then all they ever feel is a failure and it's likely that they'll quit and uh, will throw in the towel and stop trying. So instead from outcome goals and emotion goals, you can kind of ask a few questions and try and dig a little bit deeper into uh, better goals. And these are goals that I call value-based goals. So it's instead of asking about their goals, I try and get an idea for people's values first. And values in like, when you talk to normal people about values, they're like, what's a value? Is that, do I just want to lose weight? Like, is that a value? Because it's not something we really talk about in Western culture is like kind of intrinsically understood or it's like within our culturally, we kind of understand what some values are. You know, we say like stuff like integrity or whatever, and we kind of think that that's a value, but it's not our own value. It's just, we think they're the right words and stuff to say. So you have to help people really understand what values are. And it's not something that you just tick off. It's not uh, uh, something that you do. It's who you are as a person. So it could be like, oh, I want to have a really, uh, I like fitness and I like being fit. Cool. But fitness isn't your value. It would be self-acceptance or self-compassion or, you know, um, like self, uh, self-care. So like, uh, you know, those, those things that that's kind of the traits that are around that um, behavior that you're trying to do. So it's not um, just stuff that you just tick off to and achieve. So if you can identify people's values and you do a little bit of a deep dive to really talk around what those are, 
Um, and I've got just this whole list. Sometimes people just get stuck. They're just like, I have no idea what a value is. And we're like, uh, we can work through, just talk about different circumstances and people pick out things that are like, oh, I could be self-caring. I'd like to be self-compassionate. I'd like to just be compassionate to others or I'd like to be able to have some security to look after my friends and family and stuff like that. Like you having a list can help people just like pick them out and really identify with themselves. And that self-identification is actually a massive part of it. It's not something that I want to tell them that these are the values. It has to be something that they feel throughout themselves and go, yeah, that's, that relates to me. That hits me here. Because then from those values, we talk about their shitty goals that they've told me. And, and we ask how these values are actually going to align and be congruent with the behaviors and stuff that we want to achieve. So we want behavioral-based value goals. They have to align on behavior and on values. So to get a outcome goal from like, I want to lose five kilos, it would be, I'd like to show myself some self-compassion towards eating the right amount of food or the foods that make my body feel better and I can train harder. That makes me, I want to be able to sleep so I can feel, uh, have self-compassion about how I work uh, in my uh, environment so that I'm allowed to go out and train and lose all the weight that I want to be doing. It has to be a lot uh, way more context to it than just like the five words that people generally say is like their goal. Like I want to lose weight kind of thing. So it has to be something like that because by doing that, we start applying content to it and by applying content to what our goal is and aligning with the value that they've selected, they actually start creating this identity in themselves and it adds to their identity of where they are right there. And that's really important because later on down the, uh, the line, as they start to lose motivation or if they come up with, uh, challenges. A lot of people, uh, when faced with something that like changes or challenges their identity, will really stick with it, and they'll actually double down. Um, and I learned that from sales. Like if you talk about, like if if people say like that they've got like you're too expensive or something like that, and then you find a way to make things work for them that shows that maybe you're not too expensive, but they don't like they've already said that you're too expensive now, so they don't want to come across as contradicting. So they'll do stuff to like double down on that belief. Same thing happens along in coaching. If you make them understand and really shape how they view themselves, if something comes up that like it has a contrast against that, you can really find that they double down and go, no, I really want to be self-compassionate. Uh, maybe I just don't know the best way to handle the situation, but they, instead of going, I'm going to throw in the towel, they go, oh, I really need help in and around this thing. But anyway, back to the value-based goals. So you get them to use their values that they've identified you get them to add context in and create behavioral goals that will allow them to achieve the stuff that they're after. So it would be like, I'd like to show self-compassion and make sure that I'm eating, you know, fresh, unprocessed, like unprocessed foods and stuff like that, stuff that makes me feel good. Or I want to be able to be uh, caring by allowing myself to go to the gym and exercising. It doesn't have to be something where they say, I need to exercise seven times a week or something like that. By having it very... Uh, broad in that uh, goal, uh, like the amount that they need to achieve, it leaves them open for more success as well. So you know how we're talking about that 50-50 chance of failure and success before, if I say something very broad, like I just want to be able to train at the gym to be uh, show self-compassion or self-care, by not saying I have to train three times or something like that, if they don't train three times, then they're a failure. But if they only have to train at the gym to show that self-compassion, then any time that they go is a tick in that box. If they go five times, amazing. They feel it five times. But if they just do it once, or if they only go drive to the door and you know walk in and walk out, there's no conditions on what makes them successful like that. It's a lot easier for them to 
actually translate that value into a core trait of who they are. And then from there, we can start doing habit stacking and we can start doing identity shifts to keep that going along the road. Would you prefer a goal that's like super specific or are you trying to get away from the specificness at the start? I love, I love it later? Yeah, so I love specific goals. I like SMART for trying to outline everything, but we use it as more of a way to dive into like what their goal is and then peel back the layers to kind of align it back to a goal. So you use, still use it, like it still needs to be specific, measurable, uh, attainable, relatable, time focus and stuff like that. But instead of it being like, uh, like a, a minimum threshold, I like to use lowest hanging fruit yeah. as like a, a range for them. So it's like, oh, I want to go to the gym. Cool. We're not going to set a limit on how much you have to go to the gym or how long you have to be in the gym for. Just by going, you tick off that goal. However, the behavior that we're trying to set up is that you go and do these exercises and we build into how many exercises and stuff. It would be, you've got a maximum of six exercises that you can do in a session. I don't care if you do, do all six and you go through and like uh, smash the session, just by getting there and doing some work, we start to see that. Because the, a lot of the people that we're talking about where we really have uh, this kind of type of goal that we're speaking about here are the ones that really struggle with you know, long-term commitment and stuff. Like is, yeah. We're not really talking about who athletes who have a lot of yeah. motivation that kind of allow themselves to kind of just get there and we'll just suck it up and burn through things just to uh, keep going. Yeah. These are the people that uh, continually seem to like uh, fluctuate between motivated and unmotivated. And they're always in this, like that free contemplation to contemplation to preparation stage. They kind of always just like fluid back and forth, depending on what goes on in there they actually don't ever have something that gives them enough fuel and fire to dump, jump into that uh, preparation or the determination stage of like the trans theoretical model and move forward. They kind of always just flutter back and forth. So your, so your intention then is to set the framework to get the wins and reinforce the behaviors yep. to, to repeat over time that's going to work towards that specific outcome. Yeah, exactly. So like, because you still need to have some urgency right and but the yep. thing is like if it comes from us as coaches and if it, like if we're the ones that tell them like oh you're with us for 12 weeks so that means you can only lose like six kilos and stuff like that if we give them all these things we actually take away a lot of the power from them doing that self-discovery themselves so mm -hmm. by asking questions where they can explore the answers and they can set the scene even if they like uh, are completely unrealistic by them giving it a go and working through that we can say hey that's awesome but it's like we don't we just can't achieve it in this timeline but maybe if we took a step back and aim for instead of it being like you have to go to the gym five days a week it just be just going to the gym kind of thing uh by doing that you actually encourage more uh behavior and that feed forward behavior increases the likelihood of building on top of their habits and uh their new behavioral changes that they're going through and then if you're once you've got this instead of having to uh, wait for them to kind of get spurts of motivation and stuff like that. You can then start using things to do habit stacking, which is where you take someone's habits that they've already got at the moment. It could be brushing their teeth, could be you know ironing their shirt and something in the morning, and you add that a behavior to that. So when they do this, I will then do that. And by doing this, this coupling, you will actually create the a new pathway in the brain for if I brush my teeth, I actually trigger myself to have a protein shake. Or if I brush my teeth, I actually trigger myself to make sure that I've got my uh, bands for the gym tonight or something like that. And so by coupling things like that, especially when we're trying to create a new behavior or a new habit, 
we actually have way higher chances of success. Like I find it in like the 90% rate of keeping with that behavior because it's not something that they're trying to just incorporate in their day and disrupt certain things like that. It's something that they're already doing. They don't have to give much thought to it. And how I get them to do that would be like, especially when they start setting up these things, if it's like the toothbrush example, I get them to put their toothbrush in a really weird place, somewhere that they don't normally go to it because if it's something that they've done forever, it's hard to add that behavior on. But if you go, hey, after I'm brushing my teeth, I'm gonna make sure I grab an apple out of the fridge. If you put your toothbrush on the toilet instead of in the uh, bathroom, when you go to wake up in the morning and go to the toilet, you see that toothbrush there, you get a mental trigger to like, oh, I gotta make sure I grab my apple as well. So we're kind of adding these psychological hacks or tricks that we can use to um, couple these things together to make it a lot more successful. Is that a strategy that, so when, you, when you're setting those, those couplings of behaviors um, or habits, or whichever, either one, sorry, yep. um, is, that a, is that like a, a forward and backward process between you and the client? Are you setting the framework for them or are they saying, oh, let's do this and you maybe sign off on that as a good idea? Yeah, so like I introduce the topic and see where they think, like yeah. I let them pick the goals and stuff like that. Um, because most people overextend. They're like, yeah. I wanna, I wanna yeah. like have like, I wanna meal prep for every day this week. And I'm like, okay, cool, like awesome. You haven't meal prepped for the last three years. So why do you think now you wanna do this? Same thing with like returning to exercise that people are like used to run five kilometers. They're like, oh, I can, I used to do it. So I'll just do it for the first session back. And I'm like, why would you? So instead of, uh, letting them overextend on that. I'm like, hey, let's pull it back and let's just focus on meal prepping like dinner one night this week. Yeah. Um, because like that's these, if it's that low, if the bar's that low, that's so easy for them to tick it off. Uh, the chances of success are so high that they then feed off of that and keep building onto each other. It's that, that feed forward momentum, um, which then they elect, you know, the increases and stuff like that. And it's very rarely after I've set the scene like that, that I find someone continues to overextend they're like oh well if last week was one meal prep uh for dinner uh maybe this week i might do lunch and dinner for mondays or something like that or you know a small ad small additions i don't ever find that they go all right i did this once last week i'm gonna do it seven times this week um and by doing that by continue like giving them just helping them realize that they don't need to overextend initially it actually leaves way more weeks for them to make progress continually right because how many times i've had clients that it's like at week four they've done everything that you've asked all these times and stuff like that. And between week four and week 12, nothing changes because they're, uh, they've learned everything in a like rush timeline. They slowly lose motivation as it goes across that time. And as you're trying to like flailing to balance their interest, motivation, and then also give them results, it gets to the end of the 12 week period that you might've been working with them and you could have got them way more goals, um, but they actually achieved everything so quickly that they kind of, uh, needed some more guidance and stuff like that to go along to keep them motivated. But instead, if you keep pulling it back like this and allow things to continually build up and progress, I find people have had far more successful weight loss um, with doing it. And they're also their sustainment into the future is like through the roof. I don't have them ever coming back to me as clients saying that oh, I lost, I put all this weight back on kind of thing. Um, we did a lot like a lot more work on it, which means they um, really hold back uh they hold their maintenance main sorry maintenance weight as they leave the program yeah i think just being transparent as a coach and making sure that you, like you're setting that well you're maybe abolishing that expectation to overextend themselves as well 
like we we've all probably maybe done it when we've had coaches or whatever in the past. Is like you want to do everything you can to impress this person. Like they're larger than life. They're superhuman. They're, they're this or that. So you want to do everything perfectly. And I think that if we set the tone to saying, look, you know, what's one thing we can work on this week? Mm-hmm. You know, what you know, let's set this as a task and let's honor this over the week and maybe review it next week. Um, and working on those bit by bit, like you've spoken about. I think that, like you said, it's just. We, you play a longer term game with the idea that things are going to be, you know, maintained and repeatable and, you know, kind of ingrained into that person's behavior and the likelihood of them sustaining the result, which is what we're working with, you know, the three of us and yep. other coaches out there is like way more valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. And so, and where I was, I pulled that all from was Atomic Habits, where they were talking about like 1%. Yeah. Um, and so obviously it was never a time where they started adding 5% or 10% to things. It was always like these small accumulated adjustments that added up and that like keep, kept that value going in over time. But when I first applied it, I like over applied it. I was like, Oh, we'll make it easy for people. And it's like just three nights a week. And it's like, no, Dalton, you're an idiot because people have their whole lives going on. Like started on the smallest amount that they could physically do one yeah. week, like each week and then build it on from there. Because if they do more than that, awesome yeah for them they felt better and they um get more get better results out of it but if they don't then like as long as they've done the minimum amount that they need to do and that keeps them going in and keeps them bored in so i also found that like for this by doing that uh, like i've stopped binge eating episodes like going off plan and like have like, junk food episodes and stuff like that like or anything that's uh, like deviations away from whatever they want to have has dropped like you know significantly i barely i've had like less than five percent of people uh jump off of their plan and eat you know random foods or like had their weight loss stolen for me it does make it makes no sense why it's like stalled and stuff like that so i have a really like awesome uh anecdotal experience with seeing all this work in a population of people who are you know time poor easily like um uh, influence or eating like food away from their plans and stuff like that beforehand into all of a sudden being able to like sustain this into the long run which i thought was insane because before that i was constantly fighting with clients i was like well you went and had like three like macros meals and hungry jack meals and stuff like that is like uh clearly i didn't do anything to set people up psychologically to you know succeed it was all just here's your macros here's your diet here's your training and like we're talking a week so it was, you know, I was a shitty coach back then. <laughs> <laughs> we all learn and evolve. Yeah. 100%. Cool. yeah. So you've mentioned um, the trans theoretical model quite a few times. Just wonder maybe for like the listeners that are a little bit more new to this sort of stuff. Yeah. What is that? What does it mean? Um, yeah. How would they maybe have seen it? Um, like if you've done a set three or four, you would have seen it. And it's more commonly referred to as like the stages of change. So that's like the pre-contemplation where people are kind of entertaining the idea of doing something, changing the behavior. They kind of have some form of cognitive dissonance arise because they know something that they're doing isn't quite right, but they're not willing to change it yet. So this could be an example of, you know, someone who's eating meals late at night, watching Netflix, realizing that they probably feel shitty and unhappy with their choice after having done that. Um, and thinking about it as uh, something in the future. So they could be someone that either looks at your page or checks out your stuff and is interested or maybe even asks some questions, but never actually shows any interest in, in you know, changing that behavior. 
Then you get the contemplation, which is you know, like they, a little bit more than that. So they um and are about that stage and they go through it. They might ask a whole bunch of different people what they think about things or where they find information. And so it's just more at the foresight of their mind. Whereas the pre-contemplation is just those random thoughts or uh, that kind of like bubble to the surface as we're doing something. And then you kind of have that feeling that kind of grinds against that value that we were talking about before. Um, so then the next model is the preparation or determination. They have two names um, and it's where they go, I'm going to make a change and they start changing. Like they can actually mentally start making a commitment to themselves about doing something. But here is where they'll go into um, like, they'll, they'll not intentionally, but they'll find things that it's like cost being a factor as to why they don't go around doing it. Or they'll find excuses as to things that get in their way. Um, but they, they keep, as to stay at the preparation phase, they're always looking for change. They just don't have an action on it. And then the next stage is actually action. So they go, something has helped them pull the trigger and they're like, yep, I'm going to start doing things. They outline a plan and stuff like that. But that action stage could be weight loss, like uh, weight gain, maintenance, anything like that. It's just them acting upon those changes and stuff that they want to be doing. After that, then you get this maintenance phase, the uh, maintenance stage, sorry. So very much similar, like what we do with weight loss and uh, uh, muscle gain, have a phase afterwards in which you're trying to just maintain these behaviors. The same deal, stage, uh, stages of uh, change has you just doing the stuff that you've set up, built, has become now those daily habits that you don't even think about, that you just do. And sometimes you probably don't even know why you do them because you've just done them for so long. And then lastly, the last stage, stage is uh, a stage that was reintroduced in like the 2000s because this model is really old. It's from the 70s or something. And they introduced this one called termination, which is the termination is you don't go back to those old behaviors and stuff like that. So it's not always applicable in every model that you kind of apply this to, but in dieting and stuff like that, it's you just don't go back to eating like, you know, a seven-year-old or something like that. You know, the first time your parents allow you to go eat out of home while they're away for the weekend and whatnot. Yeah, so I, I guess it sounds like that model is good in and of itself, but it's maybe missing that value element because it's yeah. like, okay. Yeah, so it's, um, it's, it's like, it explains a whole bunch of like old thought processes before people like kind of dive into it all and stuff like that. So we've got, so like some more updated ones. So the stages of change has like kind of grown into some. And if you can add in uh, Gary Mendez, Dr. Gary Mendez has one where he does psychometric testing that goes alongside of this and has uh, stages of change and behavioral change models that have been like coupled together. Um, or you have like value-based behavioral changes coming from some of the psychology uh, lines of schools that have been applying them in like behavioral change within populations of people as opposed to this stages of change came from oh man now you're gonna test me it was uh wasn't what psychology it was either biology or health and fitness it was initially used in weight loss so like i can't remember the exact when it first came around i should have researched that before and told you <laughs> um but so like it's evolved we'll give you a pass on this podcast bro yeah <laughs> it's evolved into uh a, a very more defined deeper understanding with better attribution to stuff like values around it to help it actually become uh, something like with a lot of sustenance instead of it being like this kind of airy fairy, um, like unclear ranges with examples that kind of 
shift and move between each of the stages and stuff like that. Because it's so hard to say when someone's like at pre-contemplation to contemplation to preparation because most people don't operate in like single domains. They think about and move through things depending on what's going on. So someone could be contemplating, uh, pre-contemplating that change, see an ad, get to contemplation, like see an ad for like, uh, what's that? Mike Chang's six pack abs on YouTube and go, go get to the stage of contemplation or preparation within like seconds and then shift back into pre-contemplation and stuff like that. So it was awesome to describe the overall concept a while ago. It's just super limiting in its approach, which is why instead of thinking about it in like those phases, I like to just think about it as people are able and wanting to make change. They're kind of at like that wanting and then they're making change. It's so way more easier than having to apply six different phases and different criteria to each phase. Yeah. Yeah. I think we, we probably found use for it just in like the being able to identify people will be actively doing something. So like training, for example, someone's willing and able to train three, four times a week. Mm-hmm. But they're maybe not willing and able to track their macros right now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It was good to at least like, I guess the stages of change as, as a process itself is limited, like you said, but it's at least gives you that awareness to go, well, maybe we actually, like we were saying earlier, just need to set a lower goal based on where someone is. Yep. Um, in their in their own mind, based on yep. their nutrition or their training or their lifestyle factors or whatever, that all those things exist in different realms. Yeah, yeah, and that was like some of the stuff that kind of come up in the literature about stages of change is that it like it's you can't apply it to someone as a whole because they can have like two like uh, completely uh, contradicting behaviors going on at the time. They could be yeah. trained going into nutrition wise so like that stage as a change model doesn't apply like what well, you have to break it down to applying it to particular behaviors at the time and stuff like that which then makes it way more complicated and uh harder to track uh, as what's going on so yeah exactly if you can just think about it as they're actively or not making uh, changes or acting or making changes and stuff like that then you can just uh, deal with the conditions that they're approaching you with yeah i really like the concept of though of of more looking at it as are you in alignment with those values or are you not? And like you said, everyone's trying. So if it's like, if you, if you've got a value that's maybe not being expressed as highly as you would like right now, what's the pathway to achieving that? Yeah. It's also like, it's like a way for you to identify something a lot faster than, you know, waiting for one to two weeks of like no success on a diet or something like that. If you feel like there's this, discrepancy between how you feel about yourself and what your behaviors you're displaying it's easy to just say like i just don't feel like they the, that my values are matching up to what i'm doing and stuff at the moment and that's a far more conducive conversation than are you really following the plan like hmm. what's going on here and like the accusations or even if there's not accusations that um you know the ignorance that can have come from people's uh lack of knowledge when they're trying to apply um, nutritional interventions and stuff like that. And we can just assume that either people are just cheating or eating a plan and stuff like that. Uh, those conversations are sometimes necessary, but they're not always like helpful. So instead talking about something that's coming up like that, where a person feels that there's this discrepancy between some of their values and the behaviors and stuff that they're going through, it's a, like a much deeper and applies to them um, on how to find out 
what how to make it work right because people don't like feeling like crap about themselves and doing something that makes them feel like that is a really easy way to um you know make them want to throw in the towel and stuff like that so if they can identify that that's what's going on and i have a massive conversation around that initially is like if we're doing this value-based behavioral change stuff you have to let me know when stuff's not aligning to your values because it, it takes less for me to restructure your plan to get it make sure that it is moving towards you but it's a lot of repeated behaviors which is, can kind of be like damaging on yourself if you know uh, you keep doing something that's uh, like not congruent with who you want to be as a person and where your values are and that can end up leading down the road to like distorted eating behaviors and body dysmorphia or anorexia nervosa and stuff like that i think one of the experiences that uh like i've noticed over the last say two months especially with like the way the current landscape is is like People may uh, know what their values are, but they may get distracted on focusing on specific ones and maybe they don't have, they've kind of just forgotten about the ones that are most important. And then we've seen like the shift in behavior. And I guess like once we go, we just have a moment to go, well, as a coach, you're like, right, this, it's been a couple of weeks, we've tried a few strategies. And so we go back to the goal, uh, the values and go, right, let's have a look at these values and where are you spending most of your time? Mm -hmm. So I guess like, like, is there a, like, is this something that we should be like looking at weekly with these guys? Like, is it like, is it on us to remind them of their values? Like, is it on them to, to, to say to us, like the, you're working within my values? Like what do you, what's your interpretation of that? Yeah, that's a, it's a really cool one. Hey, because it I found it totally depends on how open people are to talking about this because I found, Typically guys want to refrain from talking about it and typically girls um, will talk a little bit more about it, but the guys are the one that actually follow your advice and the girls are the ones that talk about it, won't do the stuff that we talk about changing, which completely, <laughs> it's not fair at all. Yeah, that's a very confusing <laughs> yeah, process. what I say, okay? Um, so with that, I, yeah, I find continually always trying to bring them back to those, like, because that's like a, a, if you can, if you can help them identify it, I use an exercise called the choice point, which is a really easy one for you to be able to um, figure out on the spot is what you're doing right now, helping you pull towards your values or is it not? And if you, if you say it is helping you to pull towards your values, then cool. Awesome. You're doing all the right things. I need to reframe and look at what I'm doing or what my expectations are for you because you feel that you're doing stuff that's helping you towards your goals. So maybe there's a discrepancy, misunderstanding and something going on there. And if not, if they go, I'm not doing something, it's like, all right, cool, why? Now we can start to get into the actual reasons as to why you're going off the plans and stuff like that there. So I just use that. I literally get them in the moment. It's like, all right, this is, these are the things that I did over the weekend. I went and had 10 beers and stuff like that. And it's like, does that help you feel better about your life and you know, help you align with your values? Yes, no, cool, sweet. Depending on what their answer is, we either go with it and roll on and just you know adjust the plan as needed, or if not, then we go, okay, cool, we need to figure out why this, why this is showing up. And a lot of the time, when they're doing stuff that is like that, there's <laughs> stuff like experiential avoidance going on, which is they've got something, emotion, some type of trauma or something showing up for them that makes them feel um, you know, uh, hurt, sad, upset, whatever the case is, and they're doing something which takes them away from feeling like that, giving them some of that short-term satisfaction and gratification and uh, allowing them to kind of get an escape going on from that behavior, that feeling or whatever is going on and happening for them. So with that, it kind of gets a little bit hard to, you can keep going, 
Um, and especially if you've done some like the, this act certification and stuff like that, they give you some good guidelines and paths with that. But as if you keep going to the pen, you like you have to really just keep in mind obviously scope and stuff like that. Yeah, I was just about to ask that. Closer and closer towards doing like psychology and um, you know, obviously trying to help out with people in, in that those regards. It's more when because a lot of the, the scope ends with once they start showing signs and behaviors of like damaging stuff, a lot of the psychology um from the DC, DSM and stuff, they're like long-term behaviors. A lot of them, most of the stuff can't be stuff that just like shows up once. So if someone's repeated long-term, like three months of behaviors where they kind of got like, keep talking about, you know, always being small and having distorted body image and stuff like that, or, you know, keep exercising training and then take a whole bunch of drugs just to keep getting bigger and bigger. Um, and that's their, their hang up. It's not because they just want to chase like athleticism or they're interested in the sport. It's because they keep thinking that people see them as small. It's that repeated behavior that you'd have to be like, oh, hey, we can't keep doing this anymore. We'd have to jump them and get a psych to work with you and sign yeah. on, come back on and stuff. Whereas if you're just showing interest in people's um, and you know, you're talking about the things that are hurting and harming them, because it could be something that we're giving them. If you don't ask those questions and find out about that and, and around that, then you're probably doing more harm not asking than you are by asking. It's getting the answers and stuff that you might go, whoa, well, cool, this completely makes me aware that this is well out of my scope and I can't help you with this one. Um, I'll do everything I can in my power, but here's some people that we can see to work through this with you. And then when you're ready, we can come back and keep going on. Um, as opposed to, well, I don't know, my experiences, uh, every time I try and pretend to be, like wear all the hats and stuff like that, I end up getting fucked over. <laughs> yeah, it's not a good place to be. Yeah. You kind of almost brushed over it there, but I think the idea, and I just want to confirm that this is what you meant. So over a 12 week period, if you're running into a similar issue, that's um, like you said, that the body dysmorphia or whatever could be disordered eating, could be any of those things, I assume. Um, after that three month period, it's kind of like there's no, not necessarily an intervention that a, a coach slash personal trainer is really going to, be able to implement at that point and yeah, so like, time to refer out yeah like if it's a long-term behavior like that that's definitely where you try and refer out but again it all depends on like the severity and stuff like that like the dsm has they have so many um like guidelines and criteria and stuff like that they're getting better at making it a little bit more broad not ambiguous but broad in that it's open to psychologist interpretation or like a clinician interpretation Whereas uh, before the previous editions were like, it had to fit within these brackets and criteria for it to be considered this. And if it wasn't, then you kind of fell in this like range where no one could kind of help you. You weren't able to get help by the people, uh, you know, coaches and stuff like that. And you weren't helped by psychologists. Whereas now it's kind of showing a lot more overlap and stuff as well. Um, but like definitely that long-term repeated behavior and stuff, if you're seeing that still, irregardless of like, you know, allowing them to like a perfect example is like disordered eating, right? So if we say, like we're going to do a weight loss phase. I'm going through 12, uh, 12 weeks of that. They have episodes like where they eat off plan or they don't follow the plan or they gain weight back or they uh, do, you know, restrictive eating where they, um, you know, fuck up their eating one day. So then they overexercise and then they pull back on their eating and like all those distorted behaviors that we see instead of it being something that we're trying to balance and it's planned and calculated for them, it's a response to their poor behavior and it's seen negatively. If it's that's continually done and you see that for a long period of time, 
And then you go, hey, well, I'm seeing this now when we're doing some weight loss. Let's give you a maintenance phase or a surplus or something like that to really, like take away some of the restrictions. And then they do that and they still do similar behaviors through the, uh, the shift in like calories or the shift in training. Then that's where it's like, okay, cool. They're starting to show a lot of the distorted patterns, regardless of the uh, intervention that you're trying to give them. We're seeing these same patterns transcribed across the place so that's where it would be like oh red flag i'm probably wanting to refer out or get even just have them chat to someone um outside of that to just be like hey i think this is this is what this person is showing but like if you could do your own um diagnosis or um you know your own assessment of what's going on because they might go hey no you're completely fine you're just uh, being a little bit sensitive and stuff to it which i found actually quite often because i just get I like really care for people, right? So I want to help them, but I obviously know that there's up to a certain point that I can help them, especially until I'm qualified as well. Knowing that some of my um, licensing re relies on me not ever like stepping over that mark when it comes to that. So um, I, I, like, there's some people that I've pulled up short and they had to say, hey, we just need to get checked out by a psych because this is starting to look a little bit like this behavior and stuff like that. Um, and most often I've found that, that like it's just my sensitivity and stuff to it. So yeah i think it's so powerful though because it's something that like i have a pretty similar model for referring out for pain so it's like if you have pain during training or during a movement or whatever it's like cool add this into your warm-ups play with this let's try and stabilize that mm -hmm. um relearn this pattern blah 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 over a phase or two and if it's like there's no improvement it's like okay there's something else going on here it's not just like mm -hmm or it's out it's something beyond what i can see or fix yeah. it's like cool go see the osteo and get an adjustment or whatever yeah. um, and have them report back to me about what's going on but i don't think we often have that conversation in terms of mental health within the fitness industry very often there's not many coaches that are like comfortable enough to say to someone hey i actually think you should go talk to a psych because mm. um, it's it's obviously quite a intimidating Thing. Yeah, like you yeah. don't want to tell the per. I think there's still a misconception that if you go to a psychologist, you're broken. Yeah, yeah. coach, you don't want to be the person saying, "Hey, you're broken. You need to go get fixed." Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's actually funny. We have a higher chance of working with someone with disordered eating behaviors than any other industry because people with disordered eating behaviors obviously don't always have the same body composition and stuff that they want yet want to have different body composition or have body dysmorphia or a whole bunch of conditions and stuff that go along with it. So it means that they're more likely to want to jump in and stuff like that. I think the, it's the shitty stigma like as well that goes along with it to try and do as much talking and educating around it to realize that our psych issues are just as about like valid as our health issues that like physical health issues. Um, so that they're the more open and honest and communicative we are about it, the easier those experiences are. And I think um, something that we also, as a society, as a culture, we have um, pretty shitty language to kind of explain some things. There's like a lot of people have only had conversations around someone asking what they really think about themselves and stuff like that very few times. So it's a hard thing to actually communicate and go through those processes. So that takes a long time to be able to get there as well, not only from our point of view and making sure that we're looking after them, but also from a client's point of view and being able to actually express the stuff that they're going through and feeling. Because like, if I tell some of my clients, tell me when you're stressed, a lot of them just go, Oh, I had a really shitty work week and um, the boss gave me extra work and stuff like that. And I'm stressed. And I was like, okay, cool. So like what else has like stressed you out? 
they would have no idea that nutritional interventions are stresses, that diet, uh, like training interventions and stuff are stresses, that even just playing the PlayStation or wanking could be a stress. They don't understand that it could be any uh, behavior that's done that shifts the body away from homeostasis. To them, it's this concept around working a lot and being like mentally fatigued and tired and stuff around work. Where so like the, just those um, you know common misunderstandings and communication uh, errors that people make that we have to eventually like coach people through and uh, help them understand for them to be able to talk the same language as us to be able to actually make sure that we're clear on what we're talking about there. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. So maybe tying it back a little bit. Um, so we talked about smart goals earlier. How would you go about putting together smart goals that are more effective than just, I'd like to lose five kilos in 10 weeks. Yeah. So I get them. We still do that smart, that same smart principle where we, uh, we work through the acronym, but I find I want them to identify their, their values when they do that. So I add that as like that, that first step. And we work through that. If they're unsure of what their values are, I can help them with some examples and work, uh, work through like a list so that they can self-select. And then we draw out um, something that fits within that. So it could be like, I want to lose five kilos um, and my, like my, some of my values. And it's not just one or two. You can have like 10, 20, 30, whatever, however many values you want to have. Um, but the, you're just making sure that they kind of align and the, what you're doing and setting up for the goal is both outcome value based and then you turn them into behavioral to couple them with the value. So the outcome might be like, I want to lose five kilos but my goal is uh, I want to have some self-compassion or self, uh, self, I want to have, be self-caring. So then uh, the way that we would set it up to be value-based and behavioral outcome would be, or a behavioral goal would be to make sure that I exercise this week and the exercises would be like going to the gym or running and not setting a minimum requirement or a maximum requirement for them to do, but just allowing them to tick the boxes and do them as many times as they they can and so in doing that like there's still some small chance of failure which is they don't do anything at all but what we do by setting such a low standard for them is you're allowing them to have so much chances of success that out of like five days of the week that they could go to the gym they at least get one of them or something like that or they go out and they get a walk or something you know so if we set the goals like that so it's so much easier for them to be able to achieve but then I still want to make sure that it's like, you know, specific to what they want to be doing. If it's weight loss, we make sure that it's behaviors that are going to be uh, added to towards being like having weight loss as an outcome or it's measurable. So it's like, all right, are we going by like clothes size or are we going by like scale weight and stuff like that? Like the same traditional methods that you would use for a normal way to measure that. But we're making sure that it's congruent with the values and stuff that they identify because they can say they want to have they want to be self-caring, but then they uh, decide to have like cheat meals and stuff every week. And, you know, so there's like some disconnect between what they think is self-caring and um, what they want to be achieving when it comes to weight loss. So you can talk about that and go, Hey, you're eating off plan once a week and you're doing these meals and stuff like that. But you talk about being self-caring. How do you see this activity as being self-caring to you? And you let them walk through the mental uh, map of what they're experiencing because they might actually feel that it's self-care and they might feel that six and a half days of following the plan, you know, to the best of their ability is as self-caring as they can be. And then they like and enjoy that. 
uh, one meal where they're eating out and stuff like that. And they might know or not know, and you can educate them that it might undo some of their work, but they might know that and be completely okay with that. So it's making sure that they identify the goals that we together help reduce and set down such a low threshold for them uh, when it comes to their goals for them to be able to achieve it, to make it really successful and help them uh, feed forward into doing way more goals, uh, like ticking off way more things and turning them into habits. And then also making sure that when things are popping up that seem to be going against whatever their values that they set out with at the start, we talk about those things that are showing up with their values. So it would be like that you're eating a plan like this and you said you value your self-caring. Can you walk me through how this is being self-caring for you or what you're feeling? And most of the time, if it's not, they'll, you, they'll show up and say something like, I don't know, or like they're trying to avoid explaining out some like um, something that's, you know, uncomfortable or unhappy for them to explain about or, you know, and then that, that shows up enough for you that you can be like, all right, cool. You understand you're saying you don't know. Uh, is that because you just don't understand the language that I'm using? Is it you don't you need some examples, some analogies? Or do you not know because you like something's hurting and you don't want to talk about the stuff that's hurting is what's going on at the moment? And if they say that and they don't want to be talking about it, that's cool. What we can practice though is instead of talking about it, we can just, you know, try and figure out how to be okay with sitting and feeling the hurt and stuff that's going on. A lot of the other times our traditional methods are to like kind of avoid feeling hurt or uh, avoid dealing with any of the pain but if you instead like we might not even have to be something we communicate just something that you let yourself feel you actually allow more acceptance of what you're going through and feeling and it reduces down that intensity so it goes from being something that you're trying to avoid which we're giving context to which creates it into this thing that we build up in our head to be this monumental um like monster that is you know going to interrupt us and make us feel like crap whereas if we kind of go okay I don't want to talk about it, but in my head, I might get them to tell themselves what they're feeling. And just by telling themselves what they're feeling, they have to think about it, sit and try and notice. And that actual reflection internally allows the intensity to really drop down and dissipate and become a lot easier for them to develop and work through and organize. Yeah. It's, um, it's really powerful to be able to get someone in a position where they can reflect on all of that by themselves and it's not always i guess you pushing that button all the time yeah yeah massively like i can most people feel it's such a new concept for them that a lot of the time you need to help walk them through it but you can use easy analogies and exercises and stuff like that it doesn't have to be like a massive thing they don't have to go like here's my what we're going to talk about to get to like a breakthrough for you it can just be simple questions of like asking you to want to talk about or sorry not want to talk about asking you to explain yourself or like your younger version of yourself you know imagine that you have like your five-year-old or a ten-year-old version of yourself and you have to you're trying to explain this as to what you're feeling to them it, it doesn't even need to be to yourself and just by having them do that mental exercise um it, it opens up their their own mind to being a little bit more accepting of whatever is going on and it also by doing that we do that thing where we're the only animals in the world that have this capacity to be able to imagine the future, know the past, and we can sit in the current present, imagine the future, feel and remembering a past situation in which we're experiencing the future. No other animal can do that mental leap, right? They just experience everything in the now. But because of that, we also are able to feel and imagine a whole bunch of experiences or, uh, you know, feel the 
the negative side effects of some of these imagined situations and that's where anxiety and stuff starts popping up is that it's just a protection from uncomfortable feelings of in the, like something that could potentially harm you and we know that it only needs to be like right once right you're like you only need to save yourself once from being eaten by saber-toothed tiger that that your brain goes every time you feel anxiety is validated now because i saved your life so now living in this environment where we have a lot more things that kind of trigger and allow us to uh, experience those things that that anxiety uh it's a system that helps us but we have to kind of learn how to uh pay attention to it and learn how to just be okay with feeling it and that is one of the ways in which you can kind of reduce down the effects of that yeah one other thing you said i think is really valuable to to reiterate is just like as a coach how much you can reduce your weekly stress by being able to better communicate um, your example earlier was like me having a cheat meal on the weekend is aligning with my values and it is, and I'm, I'm totally comfortable with the fact that that may slow down my progress. Mm-hmm. I would rather do that than have faster progress, that kind of thing. Cause that's what I deem to be within my values. Like that whole question of like, what does that look like for you? Mm-hmm. It just like changes your entire game when it comes to personal training. Cause you're not sitting there going, fuck, why is this person eating out every week? They're not doing what they're told. Yep. They're not going to be happy with their outcome, which is all really just your own shit mm-hmm. um, that you're trying to project on the client. Cause you don't want to look like a failure. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's just like you and the client aren't talking about the same thing. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Like, and that's, that's a, a massive one. And the other end of that is, if it does come up that they're doing something that is not conducive, you can do exercises like mental contrasting, which is, okay, so you're going out and you're having this, this cheat meal every week or this reward meal, whatever it is that you want to call it, right? You're having this and it's doing this, but you told me that our whole basis has been to working on weight loss. Can you tell me what weight loss looks like for you? What does success look like for you? Now, just shut your eyes and imagine it. Imagine exactly how your body's going to look are you going to have striated glutes and or are you just going to have chiseled abs or are you going to have you know like 22 inch biceps or what is a success what does the whole package look like for you and now like really draw it what like what's your hair look like what do your muscles look like how happy what do you see your relationship with food like get them to add as much information as they can and be like all right cool now if your success looks like this and have them explain it to you and you go okay cool if your success looks like this and you're doing this behavior what does failure look like to you? And they're generally outlining, you know, the complete opposite of whatever is going on. And then you can ask them, well, do you feel that you eating out and having this cheat meal is going to take you towards the road of, you know, your actual success, or is it going to take you to the road of your, uh, your failure? Because you mentioned a lot of the things that mirror a lot closer to that failure than to the successful behaviors and stuff. And by having people add context, outline it themselves and doing that contrasting of seeing that, their, their success like in the flesh and then seeing what the failure looks like it can be really powerful for them to go oh maybe this is probably not the best thing that for me to be doing maybe we have a planned meal that i eat off that has um, these calories or we set out you know any other behavior or whatever that we could set up so that um basically explains we've talked about it before on the podcast the jordan peterson uh self-authoring program it's like you basically go down a road of what do you want your life to look like? And if you keep doing what you're doing, what's it actually going to look like? Yeah. Yeah. It's a very, uh, it's a pretty old like psychological concept for like called mental contrasting. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. He's, uh, he's, he's picked up on that one. 
Uh, Jace, did you have any more questions on that stuff specifically? That was pretty comprehensive. Yeah. So my main one conversation, right? It's a hard one to have. That's like without getting too technical, but without like to also provide so much value for people to be able to apply it and take it and run with it as well. So it's an exhausting concept to talk out and through for people to like listen to. I can understand if it's overwhelming. Yeah. So that, I guess that leads me to my couple of questions. First one is like what we've mainly contextualized this under today is like somebody who's just getting back into exercise or introducing themselves to dieting and kind of at that kind of basement level starting to change um, mm-hmm. from sedentary, I guess, into training. Yeah. Taking this same approach to a more athletic population, someone comes in, I want to compete, I want to be a national level powerlifter or, or whatever that tangible outcome is that they've walked in with. Yeah. Um, you're the guy I want you to take me, take me to um, that outcome. Is there anything different or maybe even just like use that as an anecdote of how you would apply this model? Yeah. So you'd find that those, uh, most of it still applies. However, it's just from the direction that the change. So most people who are struggling to get into it or make behavioral changes and stuff need encouragement to build up on things. Whereas athletes really need to be restrained and pulled back and told to slow down because they have such a heavy desire and drive that that is enough to keep, launching them into things they're you know not the greatest at regulating training intensity because they just want to train hard all the time because they're you know their rivals might be training a little bit harder than them like that that like mindset so for a lot of it it's, it's giving them the same exercises and activities but maybe coming at it from a way in which is more about self-preservation to make sure that they get to the end so that they're able to take on the best and you know compete against them to see how they stack up as opposed to encouraging them and helping them get there. Because if someone's come in and they've got national level um, ideas or goals in their head, that that's what they want to achieve, but they're showing like signs of behaviors of someone that's, you know, still trying to get into exercise. It's very much massive cognitive dissonance that would show up at like kind of the first session that you could go, this is really not like making any sense that you're doing this and you're telling me this. It really doesn't seem like that's the case. Uh, but what would definitely be something that I'd feel uh, you'd see a lot is that, that over application of all these things that you have to kind of pull back on, you know, like, and then you see the end extremes of that nutritionally, which would be like, you know, the more restrictive behaviors or like, you know, fearing of food changes and stuff like that um, because of the potential of it, either stuffing up what they've already done or, you know, not wanting to go outside the comfort zone that would mess up how that they're you know, approaching training or something like that and more so into their lifestyle domain where for them training and is everything to them. Their sport is everything. So uh, they don't necessarily take a lot of time off to allow themselves to mentally recover from the sessions that they do or the, the diet approaches and stuff that they take. And a lot of their hobbies and interests are around the sport. So there's not um, as much psychological investment or recovery that happens uh, by having interests that are elsewhere that help us shift into from that sympathetic to the parasympathetic state, allowing for more rest and recovery to happen. Yeah, it's an interesting point. Yeah. So perhaps even like identifying values that lie outside sport as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like a great one. If you can give them something like that, there's uh, uh, then they can find uh, 
a reason to invest in those areas, which then, you know, falls back into them feeling better about their training and allowing them to be better at their training or recover better or have better relationships so that it doesn't mess them up. You know, all the things that happen on like that, the periphery that they don't think about as being as a part of the sport that are actually have way more influence on what's going on. I mean, there was the HRT training guy, what's his name, Andrew Flat, who spoke about how I think they had the Omega wave, which is those machines are massive, like the, the uh, NFL players, they have the Omega wave where you lie into it and it tells you like what your uh, HRV is and your synthetic state and parasympathetic state and stuff like that. And this guy's readings came back so jacked up that they were like, oh my God, are you about to like be sick and do we have to send you to the hospital? And it just turns out he had a massive fight with his um, girlfriend at the time. And it was like, you know, obviously causing heaps of internal dis- uh, like uh, conflict, but he wasn't really showing it. And he just rocked up the training to get ready to train. And luckily they tested him and saw this and they're like, wow, man, you're like showing signs of symptoms of like, you know, sickness or fever or overtraining and stuff like that, that we would have to just pull you back. Um, and like, that's a perfect example of how things outside of our little point of view of what actually influences us is so much more, uh, you know, interactive than we realize, but like this little tuning fork. Mm. Jace, do you experience that with your athlete athletes that like, kind of got to put the reins on them more often than not uh yeah so um usually like those people are always wanting to like do that little bit more go that extra level um and it's not it might be a combination of trying to like please you as a coach but also for them they're just like high achievers as well so they're trying to maybe that value system like they're like them kind of setting the bar being you know showing strength and success and stuff is super important so i think it is valuable for us to as coaches to be able to like just take that enthusiasm um and take that desire to be great um and just harness it in the right areas or just like yeah tell them that you know what they're doing could be counterproductive to their their goal which is probably the most valuable thing for them so um, it's definitely something that happens it's definitely not so like you wouldn't approach it straight away. That's the, like my yeah. goal is that like, you have to allow athletes to show where they're at and what they're willing to do and stuff like that. And then from building that relationship, you kind of get an idea for those that you do need to pull back. And it's very rarely that I've worked with someone that's come straight and I'm like, you're an awesome athlete, but I'm going to have to like, you know, pull you on the reins all the time. You do see that. You see that the high enthusiasm, the willingness to learn and stuff like that. Their application is really, really awesome. So, for a long time, it looks like they're just being a super adherent client. Um, it's just that the end result is that they start to get more towards the burnout or their results aren't as good or like you end up seeing um, signs and symptoms that would show up as overtraining for most other people and they're quite not there. So you're kind of expecting maybe a storm to come in the future, uh, you know, in the next couple of weeks or so if they kept up with that same intensity and trying to catch it before it does start become damaging, um, you know, rather than approaching someone when they're first coming to you and you're like, don't train hard, man. Like, well, yeah. <laughs> I think you've got a good um, combination of this, you know, this approach to um, coaching as well as the the metric side of everything. And I think you like you can kind of forecast if that's going to happen. You know, through their, you know, objective subjective data, mm-hmm. feedback from you, their program, and then obviously your ability to pick up on these you know, cues from a mindset and coaching perspective. I think that's like a really good combination as a coach to be able to identify potential problems. Yeah. Yeah. And for any coaches that are listening, if you're new to the, the best way to build up this would be to build objective measures that you can go with first. 
because the subjective stuff, the stuff that you build is the stuff that you gain from experience. So if you get a better understanding of some objective stuff that you can start to look towards, that's an easy way to start identifying things that go on. And then you can kind of couple that with subjective feedback from both the client and your own experiences. Yeah. Yep. That was my next question was how do you apply it online? <laughs> that's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah. So like, that's like, it makes it so much fun. Um, because when I start, it's in conversation and in person, you can see, you pick up differences in like, uh, like you know, posture and pace with language, communication, articulation, how they feel, are they, you know, uh, what behavioral traits and stuff do they kind of exhibit? So you can kind of pick up these micro expressions of things that are going on and online. Everything's like two dimensional, right? So even a, yeah. in a conversation like this, you're trying to understand the stuff that's going on but it's hard to grasp those other things so for me it's just about continual communication i keep trying to find different ways to say the same thing to people that they understand what i'm trying to get across as well as i um i really like stopped feeling uncomfortable doing examples of the behaviors and like strategies or exercises that i'm trying to get people to exhibit so if i'm trying to get someone to close their eyes and walk through a, something, a strategy that I'd be like, all right, I'll, I'll voice it to you and you can kind of like guide this and uh, we'll, I'll talk to you as to what you experience. Instead, I just cop it and demo it and talk about what I'm going through and how I'm feeling and stuff like that. Try and be as involved as I can because then they're more likely to sit and watch and try and want to reciprocate it. Um, and also they know that I'm not doing this just to make fun of them or that there's not something here that's kind of just weird. It is actually a genuine investment in them trying to understand something and experience it. So I find that that's the greatest way to kind of get around some of these limitations of it being done online. Yeah. And Dalton's tough and has tattoos. So if he can do it, you can do it. Yeah. <laughs> so were you, uh, and I'm curious from memory, you did some face-to-face -face coaching and then moved to online. Um, Sounds like obviously there was uh, in the gym. I like worked out of a gym first initially, yep. then went online part a uh, hybrid approach of like in gym because everyone wants to train with you between like six a.m. and or five a.m. and eight a.m. and then three p.m. in the afternoon to eight p.m. kind of that split shift range. And I was like, I can't work with people in this, or I'm limited. I can only work with one or two at a time um, across that hour. So it's like really, you know, not impacting a lot of people. And online, I can have a client base of like thirty people that you know, might want to talk to me across that time, but I'm not invested in like an hour block that uh, I can't talk to anyone else and stuff like that. You can either do it through messaging or email or whatever the case may be uh, to allow like a greater breadth of people and stuff to be able to help out more people. So I enjoyed that, then moved to fully online and then moved back because uh, I had a CrossFit box ask me to be the uh, nutritionist for the, just as to the gym there. And I ended up getting like 35, 40, 35 clients from their box that uh, wanted stuff and I was doing it in person and whatnot. So I was still running the online business and then I was doing that in person. So continually found ways to kind of do a hybrid approach of both. But right now it's everything's online. So you expressed earlier like that frustration that you had prior to this knowledge in like, why the fuck are you doing what I tell you to do? Um, and now being able, I guess, to go through these exercises and stuff like that. And I'm curious, Jace, obviously you're face-to-face -face and online as well at the moment, as I'm noticing probably in the last six to eight weeks, 
there's it's been a noticeable shift for me and that's like what are we almost 12 months now out of the gym to be able to just go that check-in's not normal yeah and send a message and be like okay this is a we need to have a chat this is like your your templated check-in has like a little bit of tone like you were saying in person you can kind of say you're standing wrong your eyes are weird you're a bit standoffish or whatever's going on being able to pick up on that online yep yeah i um i should have mentioned that also before like the the other way is like i do these like phone calls like this where i can see them and stuff like that as well so uh if you just do everything through email or text-based communication and stuff like that apparently i sound like i'm a fucking robot apparently because i don't put emotions and like smiley faces or emojis and stuff into my text so um, maybe i'm a psychopath and people like read my stuff like i'm super angry all the time uh so which is why i, I then was like uh, i'm getting like getting really weird responses by people that i thought i was just communicating normally to so i went back and dived into the online um the, the zoom phone calls and stuff like that so that i could see and have that chat because um there was that, that discrepancy in what was going on there and maybe i sound retarded but then like I, I, this is the one area where I feel like my knowledge, just my application and willingness to keep learning really did bring myself through is you just learn so much through uh, studies in that these are kind of guided examples of what other people have experienced doing this situation. And it tells you kind of what to expect. So in doing that, when I see stuff that kind of falls outside of my ranges and I've worked with so many people now that I've tested all these ranges and I haven't met anyone that actually lives up to, um, outside of that except for one strong man uh who was six foot nine and just like his body mass was almost like he was 165 kilos six foot nine so like everything skewed on my data points but that was the only person in which a range didn't apply to so when i see stuff that doesn't fit within the model that i would expect to see then i look into what their communication has said back then i try and do a conversation and stuff like that to kind of in that order go hmm, okay yep this is not making sense here here and here we need to have a chat or it looks like these things are happening here. Um, let's dive back into some, uh, you know, uh, examinations of where your values are and if they've grown or shifted and changed and moved around. Yeah. Yeah. We had to teach Jace how to use emojis too. Back in the day. I, I still do it, but then I have to still do it after yesterday. Then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm so bad for it. Yeah. I bet I'm worse. <laughs> <laughs> I have clients that are the same that are just like, how is, how is your training and performance this week? Good. Yeah. Oh, that's, yep. Okay. <laughs> yeah, at least I'm articulate. Like I'll write out everything that I'm thinking, but I, I guess some people just read it like I'm yelling at them. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I don't read them at all like that. So I'm just like, oh, cool. So you had a great week where like <clears throat> other people might be like, oh man, is so-and-so upset at me? Like, yeah. Yeah. They pissed at me. I'm like, no, maybe they're just, Telling you exactly what you need to hear. Yeah. Which is that they're good. <laughs> Get the least amount of words possible. Yeah. yeah. And I think it, like we were just talking about, it's that consistency too, right? It's like correct. When, yeah. when it's usually, oh, I had a great week and this happened and this happened and I really liked this. And then the next week you get good. It's like, ah, oh, fuck, we're in some water here. <laughs> you can go the other way as well. Like I've got um, clients that are, you know, kind of more like me, I guess we'll call it. And it's just, you know, real clear, real concise. You know, check-ins can be very brief. But then like, if they're, if that person writes me an essay, I'm just like, fuck, all right. What's, and, it, and it's always something's gone Wrong. pear-shaped. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, okay. So yeah, it's just understanding, you know, that person. 
and you know have, and and the, the like there's a tremendous amount of intuition that comes from all this as well like building that objective data that you were talking about getting a framework for the subjective data after that like some of that stuff's like you know being able to assess that is yeah like kind of intuitive in nature you know you kind of just get that feeling like oh something's not not quite right and you know then you reach out and you know all of a sudden it's not an accident that that person's maybe not in a good space as well yeah 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 very much so i think um i've always found that adding back in some metric like like a zoom phone call where they can get the face-to-face interaction has always been a way that can uh recover from that if it feels like it's a bad client like client to client coach to client yeah. interaction, like that um and you know an easy like five minute clarifier on zoom is way yeah. faster than multiple emails that can you know end up getting you know completely interpreted yeah i agree man i just find like through the hybrid hybrid coaching world so it's like i'm in i'm in the gym like face to face and online and then it's like if i'm online i try to do the they see me and see and and hear me articulate words to them not yep. just read them all the time and i think that's super valuable yeah. But like building yeah. a relationship, retaining information, just showing you like you're gonna you're you're putting that extra effort into. Yeah, I found that uh, that loom the video recorder, yes. just film yourself and send them through as well. Definitely helps out as yeah, well. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. yeah, when the when the videos record properly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've had twenty to thirty minute ones that I've done and that just like fail. Oh, uh, dude, yeah, it's like oh, you, you cut out of five minutes. It's like fuck, that was a ten minute video. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I reviewed 16 exercises yesterday and got a message this morning. Yeah, that loom video didn't work. Oh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's great when it works. <laughs> yeah, I think it, they're just relying at the moment on that, that it's so user-friendly that everyone will just accept a little bit of unreliability. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, to eventually sell it when they've got a user base worth like, you know, 100 million or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then Facebook will buy it and you'll be able to just do it in there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, man. So give us your spiel. Where do we find you on the interwebs? Oh, uh, yeah, you can type daltonfrank.com. Uh, apparently Google doesn't like me enough at the moment that if you just type in Dalton Frank, that, that my website doesn't come up, but everything else comes up. So all my podcasts, all my articles, everything else, Instagram posts, LinkedIn, everything else. Um, Google just hates me at the moment with my uh, stupid website, but daltonfrank.com. Uh, I'm on Instagram at daltonfrank now. I used to be Coach Dalton, but now Dalton Frank. Uh, Facebook, same Dalton Frank. Nice and easy. Beautiful. Easy to remember for sure. I find that you got problems. Yeah, and we'll um, <laughs> we'll have Tam put all the notes and stuff. Jace is taking them and put them in the show notes for everyone as well. So if um, if you like me and Dalton said lots of stuff really quickly and you want to go back and review it all they'll be in the show notes so thanks tam <laughs> thanks again tam yeah <laughs> no that was really valuable man yeah, um, i agree it's great chat. from it i think a lot of people will so appreciate your time yeah man thanks guys i'll get those uh, resources as well that i was talking about as put them up yeah that'd be yeah. fabulous mate awesome. yeah awesome make your job easier yeah we'll take that at any time yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Love it. Thanks, Dalton. Cheers, mate. Thank you.